0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to an ancient and mysterious world, a world long before we inhabited it with all our remarkable dreams and questions. Enter a world that existed 100 million seconds ago, when our evolving Internet was the host of magnificent creations. Today, the early 21st century has witnessed a scientific gold rush of astonishing proportions, The headlong and furious haste to unravel the mystery of astronomy podcasting has become more than just a subject for science fiction writers. Why, such podcasting will transform every aspect of human life, our education, our health, our relationships, even our very entertainment. Nothing will ever be the same again. Is literally going to change the face of our planet as we know it. Behold, I give you Jodcast Park.
1: The Jodcast. Thanking Willow Tree, Jason, Kilsith D, The Naked Astronomer, and The Ellipsis for iTunes reviews. With Nick Rattenbury, Ian Morrison, Stuart Lowe, and David Alt. The Jodcast. August edition. Hello there, and welcome to the August edition of the Jodcast. I'm Dan here in Birmingham, and up at Jodrell Bank is Nick. Hi, Hi Nick. Hi, Dave. How are everybody? Right. So, what do we got on this
2: month's show? Okay. Well, this month we've got a very interesting interview with Dr. Martin Bureau from the University
1: of Oxford, uh, talking about galactic evolution. And we've also got an interview with Dr. Chris Lintott of Oxford, who will be talking about Galaxy Zoo, which we mentioned on the July Extra edition. So it's a completely galactic episode of the Jodcast this month. Absolutely. And for everything that you can see in the night sky, which includes galaxies, we'll have Ian Morrison at the end of the show as usual. Unfortunately, we have no
2: Ask an Astronomer for you this month, but please keep those questions coming in, and we will
1: answer them on future episodes of the Jodcast. And unfortunately, this month, as it's the summer holidays, we won't have an August extra edition for you. That's right. It's it's
2: the silly season. It's time for everyone to have a bit of a break, a bit of a holiday, but we will be coming back in September, Dave.
1: Absolutely. First of September, you'll have the new file uploaded to the website, so you'll be able to download us from there.
2: So no August extra edition this month. I
1: hope that everybody is happy with that.
2: We certainly need a bit of a break, and we'll come back at you nice and fresh in September.
1: First, though, before the rest of the show, here's the news with Megan.
3: In the news this month, images of Io's plasma wake, evidence of water vapor around a hot Jupiter, an ancient galaxy seen at the end of the Dark Ages. A new observational technique has revealed the extent of the plasma wake generated by Jupiter's moon Io. Due to the extensive volcanic activity on the moon, Io's atmosphere contains a small but significant amount of sodium, which emits two spectral lines in the visible part of the spectrum, familiar as the yellow-orange glow from sodium streetlighting. Some of the atmospheric plasma of Io is captured by Jupiter itself, and forms a large ionized nebula which orbits along with Io itself. Normal spectral imaging techniques are not useful for tracing the extent of this nebula due to its faintness. Mapping the sodium corona and orbital wake of Io requires imaging of faint clouds near to two much brighter objects, Jupiter and Io. A team of astronomers led by Michael Mendillo at Boston University developed a way to image these clouds using a variation of the technique known as lucky imaging, whereby many short exposures are taken and only the sharpest are combined to produce a final image with minimal effects caused by atmospheric seeing. They observed Io by passing the light from a 367 meter telescope on Hawaii, through a beam splitter and recording video of both white light and sodium light simultaneously. They then used the sharpest images from the white light recordings to align and combine the sodium images, producing images of the clouds around Io with a higher resolution than a single long exposure could provide. Their images show that Io has both a spherical ionized corona and an ionized wake which trails behind the moon in its orbit around Jupiter. Astronomers using the Spitzer Space Telescope have detected evidence of water in the atmosphere of a planet orbiting a star known as HD 189733. The gas planets in our own solar system formed far enough from the sun that simple molecules such as methane could exist as ices, but studying the atmospheres of planets outside the solar system is more difficult. In the case of HD 189733, the plane of the orbit of the planet is oriented so that the planet transits in front of the star during each orbit. By studying the starlight which passes through the edges of the planet's atmosphere, the group, led by Giovanna Tinetti, detected a signature of water by comparing the effective sizes of the planet's disk at 5.8 and 3.6 microns. Water absorbs more at 5.8 microns than it does at 3.6 microns, so the variation in the apparent size of the planet is linked to the amount of water vapor present. The amount of water vapor inferred from these measurements is almost four times larger than that predicted by planetary models. This could be due to a larger amount of water than expected, but the astronomers suggest that the difference may be due to the high temperatures in the planet's atmosphere, where water molecules are predicted to have extra absorption features not seen in laboratory experiments carried out on the Earth at lower temperatures. Using the technique of gravitational lensing, a group of astronomers have discovered some of the oldest, most distant galaxies ever seen. The light from these galaxies is thought to have been emitted when the universe was only 500 million years old, over 13 billion years ago. The light from these galaxies is so faint that they cannot be detected using current telescopes without the help of the lensing effect. Using one of the 10-metre Keck telescopes on Hawaii, the astronomers, led by Richard Ellis at Caltech, observed massive clusters of galaxies searching for the faint light of distant background galaxies which is lensed and magnified by the gravitational potential of the foreground cluster. These galaxies are interesting to cosmologists because they probe the so-called Epoch of Reionization, the period when the neutral hydrogen filling the universe became ionized and transparent. And finally, the Greenwich Observatory opened a new planetarium at the end of June. Rather than a traditional dome, the Peter Harrison Planetarium is constructed inside a large cone which appears to rise at an angle out of the ground in front of the much older observatory buildings. The angle of the inclination of the top of the cone is 51.5 degrees, the latitude of Greenwich, so that a line inscribed up the side acts as a line of sight towards the North Star.
1: Thanks, Megan. Now, as we mentioned earlier, this issue of the Juddcast is a galactic one. What I discovered in an interview
2: with uh, Dr. Martin Bureau was that galaxies themselves are very dynamic objects. I mean, we all know that the stars inside them move, orbit around their center. We also discovered over the last few decades that galaxies themselves collide, merge, and evolve, just like everything else in the galaxy, like stars and planets and all the rest of it. What I learned from him in the interview was just how galaxies change from one type to another. It's fascinating stuff.
1: Indeed it is. Well, let's find out more.
4: Galaxies are essentially the building blocks of our universe, right? They're a little bit like the bricks of a house. Dr. Marson
2: Bureau, lecturer at the University of Oxford.
4: Out of galaxies, you form the large-scale structures, like people may have heard about clusters of galaxies and and superclusters of galaxies and so on. And obviously, a good example for galaxies is the Milky Way, right? Mm -hmm. The galaxy in which we live and which you can see uh, the night sky at night if you're... Well, hopefully it's not in England. <laughs>
5: yeah, it's <laughs> <When, when There's laughs> cloud and if you're in the city, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. okay.
4: So, uh, a big puzzle of modern astronomy, I think, is to understand how galaxies uh, came to be, which mm-hmm. is how they form in the first place, and how they continue to evolve as our universe uh, ages. And uh, I think there are two broad ways of tackling that problem. One, uh, which is probably uh, the most sexy way these days, is so-called high-redshift observations. Now, people may know that. The light of galaxies is uh, lengthened as as the farther ga- galaxies are from us, and that astronomers call redshift. So, the higher the redshift of a galaxy is, the farther it is. And so, if you study galaxies at high redshift, you can study galaxies a long way away, which means very early on in the life of the universe. And that certainly occupies a lot of astronomers today. And the reason they do that is because you can see galaxies in the process of forming, more or less. right? If you look far away enough, you look far enough in time, so you can see galaxies in the process of forming. So that's obviously a very attractive way of going at it, but the the truth is that galaxies then are very small and very faint on the sky, which explains the need for very large telescopes, for Mm -hmm. example. But that's one way of going at it, and usually because galaxies are faint and small, people do statistical surveys of galaxies, they don't have much information about any individual galaxies, they're essentially just a faint
2: dot in the sky. So observing one single galaxy may not give you a very strong understanding about galaxy formation, but observing several, or dozens, how many are, I mean, are we talking about dozens, hundreds, thousands? Yeah, millions of galaxies, although
4: the, well, I don't think we know exactly how many they are, right, but... Uh, I think the samples that we're talking about at very high redshift are relatively small, but the goal is of course to enlarge those. When you talk about high
2: redshift, what do you mean in terms of redshift? The number um, of redshift.
4: So the number I think the farthest galaxies detected so far, and now I can't remember something like five or six, I believe. A redshift of five, five or yeah. six. What does that mean? I mean, five M- or six mean,
2: meaning- that correspond to in, in the, the universe's uh, life. Well.
4: To transform from redshift to time, you need to know the exact so-called cosmology, so the exact structure of our universe, which, of course, is a topic that <laughs> occupies another large fraction of <laughs> astronomers. But I think, roughly speaking, we're talking about going back kind of 90% of the age of the, new, of the universe, so you know, 11, 12 giga years ago, so billion years ago. Right, so, so, so when the,
2: the universe was only 10% of its current age. That's right, that's right. That's, right. So that's maybe, a long time ago. Exactly, exactly. So were galaxies, had galaxies completely formed by then? Had some galaxies completely formed by then, or were all galaxies in the, in the process of being formed? At I these think regions? the
4: general consensus is that galaxies form, uh, so-called, so the, the densest peak of the, the dark matter distribution. Now that's a buzzword that many people use, but essentially most of the matter in the universe that we know is not, is not what you and I are made of, and therefore is dark matter, or we call it dark matter. In any case, galaxies form on those peaks, and so early on only the most, what we know today as the most massive galaxies would have formed, so they're really rare objects, uh, the more common types of galaxies that we see today probably would have formed much later on in, in in the life of the universe, but anyway, to come back a little bit to to, to the thread I was following that's one way of studying galaxy evolution is mm-hmm. to observe these very distant objects. The other way of course is to study is to study galaxies today uh, and try to work backwards so astronomers often talk about the fossil record a bit like an you know an archaeologist would study fossils or you know, remains of old buildings to try to figure out how people live. So, by studying galaxies today, so in their kind of mature form, uh, and study them in great details, maybe we can work back on how galaxies actually form. The idea being that the galaxies that we see today, contrary to the very far away one, the one that we see today are very close by, and we can study them in great detail. So, mm. we can literally, in the case of the Milky Way, for example, Count how many stars they are, what type of stars they are, how they're moving, and so on, so we can do similar studies uh, for the closest galaxies, and that puts very strong constraints on the models that people may build to uh, on how galaxies evolve. obviously their models of how galaxies evolve must end up uh, looking like the galaxies that we see nearby. you know the endpoint is very strongly constrained
2: so two different ways of learning about uh, galactic formation or how galaxies form one looking at the very very distant galaxies and one looking at very nearby galaxies and of course the level of detail which we can see in the closer galaxies as you say is much higher allowing exactly. us to, to understand them a little bit more and perhaps you know predict where they uh, will come from that's
4: right that's that, exactly exactly obviously the two ways are complementary mm-hmm. and for technological reasons uh, looking at uh, far away galaxies uh, you need big telescopes because they're very faint so obviously historically we've been looking mostly at nearby galaxies and we know a great deal about them at least in a relative manner so my what I do personally is mostly studying nearby galaxies, and that may encompass a number of topics. You may want to study what astronomers will call their structure, which means at the most basic level what their morphology is. So how they look, you know, what shape they have. Or do they look more like a sphere? Do they look more like a disk? You know, like a good old record? Mm-hmm. Uh, are they messy? Or are they ordered? Uh, so that's the kind of first order thing uh, somebody might do. The next step would be to look at how object moves, and often the times that use is kinematics or dynamics. And that means that one might try to constrain, for example, how the stars are moving or how the gas are moving. And the way we do this is uh, using a, an effect called the Doppler effect, which means that the wavelength of the light changes depending on the velocity at which it is moving with respect to us. And that, of course, is the same thing that happens if you go to Silverstone and watch a an Formula One race, right, the cars actually sound different when they're moving towards you and away from you. Yes. So if you were to know the exact sound that your favorite Formula One car makes when it's just beside you, not moving, yes. and compare this to the sound it makes when it's going towards you, let's say, you would actually be able to determine its exact speed. So that's the same process that astronomers use. And by using this, we can measure with you know fairly high precision how stars are moving. Mm. And as people know... Stars move under gravity, and so they move under the influence of of mass, of massive objects. So by measuring their speed, it tells us something about the mass. And uh, to come back to this issue of dark matter again, obviously what astronomers are interested in is mass as opposed to light. And the the difference between the two is is a bit subtle, but it's very important. Because if you take a picture to study this morphology I talked about, you only see the luminous material, uh, such as stars as we know them. But if you were to measure the, the velocities of the stars, you can measure the total mass, and much of it, as it turns out, uh, isn't luminous at all, mm-hmm. right? So we see stars moving way too fast for the amount of light that we see. And therefore that's well, that's one of the main rationale, if you want, behind dark matter. It's a bit like imagining that the planets in the solar system going in circles around nothing. So if you believe strongly enough in Newtonian gravity, you'd say, well, there must be a dark sun in the middle, right? I don't see it, but it must be there. So astronomers use the same kind of inferences to infer the presence of dark matter.
2: Presumably, this must be a very important point because we're trying to figure out how galaxies form. Galaxies form under the influence of gravity. And if the large fraction of mass in the universe and also in these galaxies is not visible. That's a, that's a that's a strong constraint on how these galaxies could be formed.
4: Oh absolutely, absolutely. And in fact modern theories of galaxy formation show that the evolution of the universe is totally dominated by dark matter. In fact people may also have heard the term dark energy. So in mm. fact the current fraction of each if memory is good is something roughly like seventy percent of dark energy, which we have no clue at all yes. what it might be. Then uh you know most of the of the remaining thirty percent, twenty seven percent, I believe, is dark matter, probably a bit less now, I think. Mm. And only the last few percents are, are bright matter as we know it. Uh, physicists use the term baryons, but that just means the same atoms as you and I are made of. Mm. And uh, so obviously, if mass matters, then the luminous matter that we know has very small influence compared to the dark matter.
2: But we have some idea of how much dark matter is in these galaxies from the kinematics of stars, which we can see um, under, moving under the influence of this dark matter. Mm -hmm. That's
4: right, that's right. So we can constrain this at the galactic level, at the level of clusters of galaxies, as I've mentioned, so groups of galaxies. Uh, And in fact, in the universe as a whole, and that comes mainly from modeling the evolution of galaxies starting from something, yes, called the cosmic microwave background, which is, you know, the, the farthest radiation we can see. So before, in fact, galaxies formed. And that radiation, although very, very, very uniform, has, in fact, and small inhomogeneities, so small departures from the uniform temperatures. And if you think that those inhomogeneities are the seeds of galaxy formation, so these are, if you want, the blobs of matter out of which galaxies will form, then you can predict that evolution based on gravity, and, and obviously that model will constrain the, amor- the amount of dark matter that there must be, and it turns out that this amount is very large.
2: Mm. So that's where galaxies start from, from these inhomogeneities, these small changes. Uh, in well, from what we understand, is the the first light coming off the, the after the Big Bang. That's, actually, that's right. That's right. Well, the light is
4: a trace of these you know, homogeneities. That's right. That's right. It's mm-hmm. the, you know, the furthest picture we can take. So these homogeneities were obviously present before, and they're obviously still present today. A galaxy, after all, is a lot denser than the empty space around it. Mm-hmm. So it's the kind of ultimate in homogeneity. But yeah, so the idea is that these uh, small, very small inhomogeneities grew out of gravity right gravity essentially attracts uh, matter so the, the bigger blobs of matter attracted the smaller blobs and these then merged together and the small blobs merged to make bigger blobs and the bigger blobs merged. we're talking about
2: blobs here. the blobs of what i guess it's a good question presumably some of this dark matter which we don't know but that's right that's right
4: most of the mass will be dark matter but there isn't in there a small amount of material the same material out- normal output. stuff that's know. right normal yeah. stuff and um, well, as this material comes together, it will become denser and denser. And if it becomes dense enough, we think it turns into stars. I mean, we're pretty sure it turns into stars, because after all, stars are present all around us now. We don't really understand how stars form. But I think the basic idea is that if material becomes dense enough, at some point it will turn into a star, and then it will start to shine. And then this is a bit like a beacon illuminating these peaks in the dark matter distribution, right? You couldn't see them at first. Stars form in the densest part of the dark matter, and then you have a beacon, a bit like a lighthouse, right, allowing you to identify these peaks of the dark matter distribution. Is that the order of
2: galactic formation, then, that stars form first, and then they, what, treat together and become galaxies? Is that how galaxies form?
4: That's a tough question. I don't think anybody really knows exactly how galaxies form. But I think the idea is obviously that, yeah, I think stars form, and then they form in these peaks of the dark matter distribution, so presumably many stars form very Mm -hmm. close together and more or less at the same time and these are the seeds you, know, you could call them very small galaxies I guess and then these merge together right. come together under gravity and you build bigger galaxies this way by amalgating smaller and smaller galaxies this is often called galactic uh, cannibalism and it's probably a
2: decent analogy Galactic Galactic cannibalism <laughs> So. Bigger galaxies eating smaller galaxies. That's things. right. So okay. They become bigger galaxies themselves. That's right. That's right. So that's do, you, do you see this in, in observations, presumably of of galaxies uh, long, long ago in the the high redshift observations? Do you see oh. this sort of cannibalism going on?
4: Yeah, the observations at high redshift are quite tough. But even even close to us, we see this happening. In mm-hmm. fact, the Milky Way itself, our own galaxy, is in the process of gobbling up gobbling up uh, a smaller satellite. Smaller, we call them satellite galaxies, just like the moon is a satellite of the Earth. So the Milky Way has a number of small satellites uh, around it. Uh, In the south, you can see a couple with the naked eye, the so-called large Magellanic Cloud and small Magellanic Clouds. And although if you look at them with your eye, they appear to be distinct entities. If you had uh, eyes that could look at radio wavelengths, such as the uh, George Bank telescope here, level telescope, I should say, uh, that can observe uh, the line of neutral nitrogen, and then you would see that these two objects are actually just part of a much, much larger structure, which is called the Magellanic Stream, and that these two galaxies have interacted not only between themselves, but also with the Milky Way, and so mm-hmm. they're essentially being shredded apart. And there's another galaxy, which we can't see with the naked eye, because it's already almost totally shredded, which is called the Sagittarius dwarf galaxy, and which is at, at the moment, being gobbled up by the Milky Way, and so we know that this process of 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 growth of galaxies by this galactic cannibalism uh, is is an ongoing process it's going on at the moment. Yeah. That's right. It's not that it was more more intense in the past, but mm. it's nevertheless definitely still happening today. Um, in fact, as people might know, if we wait long enough, the Milky Way will merge with the Andromeda galaxy, which is the next giant galaxy. So the the next giant galaxy close to us. And uh, the two galaxies are actually coming together. So we know that in maybe a billion or two billion years, the two mm. galaxies will merge. So I think that's a basic picture of, of how galaxies think they form and, of, of course, of how we tackle this problem. So you can either observe these nearby galaxies, such as the Milky Way, saying mm. that it's in the process of goblin-mark galaxies. Uh, and we can see what the effect on the Milky Way is uh, or observing at, at higher redshift. So that's a basic picture, of course, then the bigger challenges are to explain the variety of galaxies that you see. not all galaxies are the same; they have a range of masses, they have a range of
2: of shapes yes, i mean people people will have seen just the you know amazing array of galaxies that we can see big round, clumpy sort of shapeless things or big round you know football shaped things. And the beautiful spiral galaxies, which we believe the Milky Way galaxy is a, an example of one, so tell us a little bit more about you know how we understand these different types of galaxies were created, given that you know they seem to come from the same stuff yeah, yeah.
4: okay, well, essentially the big round galaxies football shaped galaxies that we refer to, we call them elliptical galaxies, for the obvious reason that they're elliptical in shape, and people think that these are the kind of prototypical result of of this hierarchical merge of galaxies, gradual merger of small blobs... A galaxy bigger blobs gobbling blobs up and so on.
2: another one eventually becomes a... That's right. So that thing. creates
4: a fairly big mess, which after you let it relax with time, after you let it kind of grow old, a little bit mature, becomes round and, and fairly smooth and homogeneous, which is what elliptical galaxies look like. Um, at the end of the, the spectrum you have the beautiful spiral galaxies just like the Milky Way and for quite some time we've known that the Milky Way is a so-called disk galaxy so it's very flat a little bit like the solar system in fact and that stars are essentially going around in circles around the center and this is a little in fact this is quite hard to explain in the picture where galaxies merge because if galaxies merge they would tend to destroy these beautiful and fragile disks yes and, and also the spiral arms
2: which seem to be you know beautifully long extended structures that's right that's
4: right so there are probably two ingredients required to explain spiral galaxies. One is that they're left alone for some time. That is, that they don't merge too often, mm-hmm. right? Because they're fragile, and so you would disturb these these disks and these spirals and so on. And the other ingredients, of course, is is gas, as we know it. Uh, as people may know intuitively, gas is a so-called dissipative component. That is, it's, it can collide. If you look at two gas clouds, it's almost impossible for two gas clouds to go through each other without noticing each other, right? right. So they will collide and... They're dense enough; you'll get rain out of it. Mm. Um, So they dissipate their energy; they lose. uh, They may, you know, that may stop their motion. For example, the little Um,
2: particles of gas actually hit each other and bounce off each other. That's right.
4: That's right. That's right. right. So it's a collisional system, right? They they enter in collision. Uh, While the stars in the galaxy are so few and far between, and in fact they don't collide, so it Mm. it would be quite possible ignoring gravity at the moment, that two galaxies could go to each other without filling each other because no two stars would actually collide. Um, In any case, so to explain these disks, the point is that gas dissipates its energy, loses its energy slowly, and it settles down in the disks. Uh, So this is a fairly well-understood process. Mm. Um, So most of the the
2: gas in a, a disk galaxy is found in the disk.
4: That's right, that's right, that's right. And if this gas turns into stars, as I've suggested probably happens when the gas gets dense enough, then you will get the stars as well in the disk. And that will explain why this Milky Way, for example, looks like it does. Presumably, if the gas settled in the disk and slowly turned into stars for a number of reasons, and then you get these disk galaxies. The interesting thing is that you get these two kind of slightly contradictory views of how galaxies evolve. One is due to your environment, this gradual gobbling up of neighbors, if you want, that I've I've referred to this hierarchical merging or galactic uh, cannibalism. On, so, on the one end, you have this process that may explain how elliptical galaxies form, the big, massive, round galaxies. And on the other hand, you have processes that are more internal to one galaxy. Right? They're not external; they're not caused by the environment. Right. Uh, processes that are internal to the galaxy that will lead to this this formation and then this slowly uh, turning into stars. Um, and so that's a bit the kind of nature or nurture. A mm-hmm. mm-hmm. question that is present in many fields. Internal field. versus
2: external influences on gas. That's right. That's right. Growth and development. That's right. That's right. So what are these internal uh, processes that you mentioned?
4: Uh, well, the main one is the so-called dissipation, which is this process by which gas will uh, lose its energy. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, one idea, which I personally work on, is that our own Milky Way is not circular. Uh, is not perfectly round shaped, but has a, a structure in it called a bar, which, as the name suggests, is a kind of thin, elongated structure. Well, one of the very important principles of physics is we call the scientific name is this conservation of angular momentum. And angular mom- momentum is essentially a measure of the spin that an object has. And me- the fact that it's conserved means this total spin shouldn't change. And that's the same effect that means, you know, if you're familiar with figure skating, uh, when the figure k- skater pulls. his or her arms, and then she starts spinning faster and faster, and that's Mm -hmm. because she needs to conserve her spin. So we think that the same thing applies to a a galaxy like the Milky Way, generally, at least if it's round. And so the stars are in the outer parts. If they were to fall towards the center, they would need to spin faster and faster. And in fact, they wouldn't get anywhere close to the center, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, And so one way to go around this problem is to have this so-called bar structure that I've mentioned and for reasons that I don't want to go into, <laughs> if you have a bar structure, angular momentum is not concerned, which means uh you don't need to preserve your spin. So if you have uh, a bar in your galaxy, you don't need to preserve spin. So it's perfectly possible then for stars in the outer parts to go much closer to the center right. without having to spin up too much. And so that's a way, for example, by which a spiral galaxy could accumulate a lot of mass in its center. Mm-hmm. So this bar essentially fuels material to the center it sends material towards the inner parts on almost radial orbits a bit like you know the stars rather than going in circle uh, like a wheel does the material would fall towards the center following the spokes of the wheel and so if you do that obviously for a long time you start building up this mass in the middle of the milky way and for astronomers this is a very cool process because we call this galaxy evolution (laughs) so the galaxy is actually changing right it's changing its morphology Mm-hmm. It's changing its shape. It's starting to build this big mass concentration in the middle. People call this a bulge, but anyway, it's starting to look more and more like one of those elliptical galaxies we talked about, right? It's starting to have this kind of round component in the middle, and that means that this galaxy is actually able to change without, you know, requiring this external influence that we talked about, such as mergers with that's other right, galaxies. That's right. So this galaxy succeeded to grow. A mass in its center without merging. Right. Without, and change itself
2: intrinsically, you know, from a spiral disk galaxy to possibly... That's right, that's right, that's right.
4: So mm. often these mechanisms are called secular evolution. Secular meanings, in this case, kind of slow, right? Right. So these processes are not as violent as two galaxies colliding and merging, but they can, you know, take place over billions of years. And so the cumulative effect over billions of years can actually be quite large and significant.
2: Have we seen examples of these galaxies with a bar in them? We uh, in definitely, them? there
4: are many nearby galaxies. We, we can just take pictures of them. And in fact, we find that if you take pictures of spiral galaxies around us, um, so the nearby galaxies, uh, we see that in fact most of them are barred. So it's not, it's not a, a you know, heretic suggestion at all to say <laughs> that this process might be happening in our own milky way, for example. Um, and we know from looking at these external galaxies that bars are present. We see much evidence that they are sending material to their inner parts. And therefore, you know, it seems like a reasonable suggestion. Mm. Uh, in the Milky Way, of course, it's much harder to identify a bar because we don't have the luxury of looking at our own Milky Way uh, from the pole, right? From looking, no, no. from being outside of this disk and looking at it. So so determining the structure of the Milky Way is, is, is a difficult exercise. And it's, in fact, much easier to look at external galaxies and figure out their structure this way.
2: So it's quite possible when we're looking at a barred galaxy, an external barred galaxy, we're watching that galaxy slowly turning itself into an elliptical galaxy.
4: That's right. Uh, I, I don't think people think it can go all the way to being a pure elliptical galaxy uh, without this, but you can certainly go part of the way. Right. And that's already quite significant and exciting, at least if you're an yeah. astronomer. <laughs> um, but but yeah, it's one of them to
2: consider that galaxies are themselves growing and changing and, and can change their shape radically from you know, th- throughout the range of galaxy shapes that we know exist now as a snapshot. That's time. right, that's right, that's right. They themselves are changing, they are, they're evolving.
4: Absolutely, absolutely. And one one also, I guess, interesting aspect of this is if you send material to the center of a galaxy, astronomers now think, and people may have heard that, that every galaxy harbors what is called supermassive black hole, mm. right? Um, so there's a very, very massive uh, mass concentration in, or in a very, very small uh, amount of space. Now, these black holes, as the name suggests, um, should be black, so we shouldn't see them. The reason, in fact, that often they are the most luminous objects in the universe is because a lot of material is falling on them. As the material is falling on them, as I said, this preservation of spin means that this material must start to spin very fast, and then it's going to start to shine. Uh, well, one way to make these black holes grow uh, is, in fact, to feed them material via V R bar, right? This elongated right. structure that I mentioned. That breaks down this conservation of angular momentum or spin and allows the material to go directly to the center. So, um, taking kind of simplified view, the bar sends material to the center, and if there is a black hole there to gobble the material up, as we think there is, then this black hole will grow. Mm -hmm. Essentially, Mm -hmm. we'll just eat too much. (laughs) Yes, it's growing (laughs) size. That's right. That's right. So this is a very interesting possibility, and it's certainly one of the leading candidates on how black holes may grow. So we think we see this happening in some galaxies. We see bars, we see these uh, black holes being so-called active, meaning they're shining a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's also an interesting possibility. That It's especially a way to link the very inner parts of a galaxy with the outer parts, which is not a, a trivial thing to do. Not an easy thing to do. Interesting question, though. How does
2: a black hole shine?
4: Yes, well, so as I said, the black hole itself doesn't shine, of mm-hmm. course. But if there is material falling around it, that this material will start spinning very 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 fast. At least it's if it more or less conserves spin, and in the process, the you know different gas clouds, if you imagine it, will rub against each other and will heat up the same way. If you rub your hand on your on your thigh, you know you will feel heat. Well, as material spins spins very very fast around the black hole, material undergoes friction and it heats up. And if it heats enough, then it will start shining the same way that. You know, All objects in the universe at a certain temperature shine. I mean, we shine in wavelengths that our eyes don't see, mm. Uh, mm. but the sun does, obviously. And so, uh, if this gas would be heated up to the same temperature as, as the sun, then it would shine, you know, in a very similar way. So these are the sun. the
2: uh, accretion disks around. That's right. That's why right. the term accretion
4: yeah. disk is used. That's right. That's right. So when we say black holes are very bright, what we really mean is that the accretion disk around them are very bright. So there, you could you could argue there are two types of black holes in the universe. There are the uh, essentially the, the off one and the on one, right. right? So the off ones simply don't have material falling into them, and so they say they stay faint, so we don't see them. And the on ones essentially have you know, material falling onto them, that material speeds up and heats up and therefore starts to shine, and these, of course, are very bright. Hmm. Um, and so when we look at all galaxies, we don't see bright accretion disk in all of them. But the thought is that they never level have black holes because simply some of them happen to be in their off- uh, stage.
2: And they can tell us a little bit about the galaxies themselves, surely, if if you see a galaxy which has a bright accretion disk at its centre, or at least the, the emission from a bright accretion disk at its centre, which we presume is around one of these supermassive black holes, that must tell us a bit about how much mass is being sucked in, Yeah, probably, right. through, probably through the action of a bar, and, and that should tell us a bit more about the, the galaxy itself, right?
4: Yes, absolutely. So you can make estimates of how much mass is falling on the black hole, this is typically measured in, in astronomers unit in solar masses per year. Mm-hmm. Uh and that, you know, could be anywhere from very little to a few, presumably. What's
2: um, a, what sort of numbers are we talking about? How many how many suns are being eaten That's right, so maybe
4: probably from from nothing to a few solar masses. So maybe uh, I'm not too familiar myself with oh, those numbers, I'm afraid, but probably something like, you know, a fraction of a solar mass per year is probably a typical number. Mm. Uh, probably these numbers were much higher in the past, early on in the universe when this merging activity was higher, because, of course, merging is another way to send material towards the black hole. But, yeah, I mean, one important measurement that has been done over the last probably 10 years, and in which, in fact, some people in England are very active, is that we've realized that the mass of the black hole uh, is correlated with the mass of the galaxy. And by correlated, I mean it's it's very strongly related to it. So essentially, the bigger the galaxy, the bigger the black hole and if you think about it, it's not uh, an obvious statement to make because a black hole, of course, is very, very, very small and, in fact, shouldn't really know in which galaxy it lives. Right? right? Uh, it's a little bit like imagining someone in the center of London uh, knowing how many people live in England. Right? If, let's mm-hmm. say, the population of capital cities was related to the, to the total population in the country, there wouldn't be any obvious reasons for this because obviously people in the capital cities don't necessarily know how many people live in the suburbs and in the countryside. Right. So the the I guess the black hole is in a similar they're in a similar situation. The black holes don't really have any obvious way of knowing in which type of galaxy they reside. They don't know how big it is and mm-hmm. you know, they're just in the center and they're they're happily living there. Mm. Um so this correlation, this relation between the mass of the black hole and the mass of the galaxy has now emerged as one of the, you know, one of the most important constraints in, in the evolution of galaxies. So no matter how you think galaxies form and evolve, you must be re- able to reproduce this relationship between the mass of the black hole and the mass of the galaxy. Right. So presumably
2: you you could either observe the uh, a light coming from an active galaxy nucleus with a black hole spitting out all this energy and you could have some handle on perhaps the size of the black hole and then infer the mass of the galaxy or do you go the other way around do you look at a galaxy and say it's going to be roughly the size therefore the black hole must be well roughly this size. obviously this relation
4: was first established by measuring directly black hole masses and comparing them to the mass of the galaxy and then we see that the two are related measuring black hole masses is a very difficult uh, exercise uh, very frustrating exercise as well <laughs> and so this relation has been established from, in fact, relatively few measurements. At the moment, there are probably only something like twenty reliable measurements around. Um, but the way people then use that is that they assume that this relation must hold true for all galaxies in the universe. Right. And then, from that, you know, they put constraints on how galaxies form and evolve. And uh, they, if they see the mass of a galaxy, they say, well, assuming that this relation, this relationship, is true, then the black hole mass must be so and so. Um, but as I said, measuring black hole and masses to establish this relation in the first place is very difficult. Uh, one way could be uh, to look at the accretion on the black hole. Perhaps the most common way is to simply measure how fast objects are going around the black hole. Again, to, for the analogy with the solar system, if you don't know the mass of the sun, you can look at how fast the planets are rotating around the sun. And that allows you to infer, assuming Newtonian gravity, mm-hmm. uh, how massive the sun is. So you can do the same for a black hole, if, of course, you can measure material rotating close enough to it. And, of course, that's the catch. Uh, galaxies, even the nearby galaxies, are quite far away. And so to measure how fast uh, stars or gas uh, are rotating around the black hole is very, very difficult because you need very, very high uh, spatial resolution. You need to be able to resolve very, very small angles on the sky And uh, this is very difficult. So, of course, the Hubble Space Telescope, that people probably have heard about the spacecraft from NASA that has been returning those beautiful uh, pictures of the universe, the Hubble Space Telescope being above the atmosphere um, has been a pioneer in measuring those black hole masses. Uh, New technologies have emerged in which, in fact, the UK is, is, is a pioneer called adaptive optics. And this is just a fancy word to say that we correct for the perturbations caused by the atmosphere. And so that allows us to make... Measurements on a spatial resolution equivalent to Hubble and, in fact, often better than Hubble these days mm. are from the ground. And, of course, now that this is available, many more black hole masses are being measured than there are, in fact, groups in the UK, uh, in both Durham and in Oxford, for example, that are making these measurements
2: as we speak. Right. And they're still following the same relationship between them.
4: That's right, that's right. So, But now we can explore this relationship more. Uh, for example, uh, there were few measurements on this relationship for the most massive galaxies, uh, for reasons that have to do with the limitation of the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, Hubble Space Telescope is in space, but it's also quite a small telescope, so its light-gathering power is limited. Right, and also these so-called adaptive optics system on the ground they allow us also to push to measure smaller galaxies, uh, and so we're exploring this relationship between black hole mass and galaxy mass to essentially to the extremes, to bigger galaxies than we had before and to smaller galaxies than we had before, to verify if that relationship holds. And the indications are that it is, but, you know, it's early days.
2: So, yeah. Speaking of which, how can we test our current understanding of galactic evolution? I mean, we have some ideas on how the galaxies are evolving, but how do we know whether we're right or not?
4: Well, it's always this comparison between models and observations. So if mm. you have an idea, you may... Um, you know, write a few formulas and piece of paper and make some predictions that you then ask your colleagues, most likely nowadays you would buy some kind of fancy computer program that tries to reproduce how galaxies form and evolve. And again, some people in the UK are leaders in that field. And then you see essentially what comes up and you compare with your observations. So in, in astronomy, as in most sciences, um, progress is made uh, through a comparison of observation and theory going both ways, right? Theorists make predictions, you go and verify them, Uh, The answer may be that they're right, the answer may be that they're wrong, but often in the process you discover new and unexpected things, and therefore then the the observations feed back to the theorist that then has to modify his models Mm. accordingly. So there's really an interplay between observations
2: and and models or theory. How hard is it to model a galaxy in a computer? Well,
4: yes, it is very challenging, of course. um, the thought is that it's probably not quite necessary to model every single star, but you can model essentially the ensemble the average, if you want, the same mm. way that, I mean, we make weather prediction on Earth and we don't model every single atom or every single cloud. Right. Uh, but as we know also, this does have limitations. <laughs> so uh, the same applies to really to galaxies. I think the system is easier than, than clouds. But um, people do make big computer simulations. They put as many stars as they can and they see how the galaxies evolve over time. Uh, they need to put both dark matter particles as we mentioned originally so that they reproduce the dynamics properly so that we know the mass influences the velocity so they want to reproduce that they must include both the dark matter and the luminous matter so they would put both in their model and of course only look at the luminous matter when they're comparing with their observations because Mm -hmm. that's what after all we observe with telescopes. that's right that's all we can see that's right that's Mm -hmm. right but the ingredients must include both types of matter of course Mm
2: -hmm. so do you see in the models um, you go from a a, let's say a very simple disk shaped thing do you see a bar form and then do you actually see a barred galaxy start to turn into an elliptical galaxy is that is that what the models tell us
4: uh yes yes and no uh if you start with something that's similar to a disk you see a bar forming you see spiral arms forming uh if you have gas in your model you'll see that stars form of course we don't understand very well star formation so people these days use so-called recipes to implement star formation in their models. As I said, we don't really know how it happens, and it happens on the scale that is not resolved by the simulation. As I said mm. we cannot put every single particle in there. Do until, you say that if a,
2: a certain set of conditions are met in the model, then you say, oh, a star would have formed here? That's or right. That's yeah. why
4: it's, we say, you know, if you have X amount of mass, then turn this into a star mm-hmm. and make it shine at this temperature or something like right. that. Um So or have a spectrum of stars of different masses and so on. So there are these kind of recipes that we think empirically are right, meaning we don't understand why they're like this, but we do observe that that's the way it happens in real life. So we just plug in the answer, in a sense. Um, So we have these recipes, um, and it's not entirely satisfactory, but it's state-of-the-art, actually. So, you Mm. know, obviously science is an ongoing process. It's the best um, we can do so far. That's right, that's right, that's right. Uh, I think the process of merging of these dark matter halos or blobs merging is fairly well understood. It's the gaseous processes that are very difficult, mm. um, and especially this process of star formation, what happens, how exactly a star forms, what will be the influence or the feedback of the star on its environment. And this whole idea of feedback, that is that stars, once form, influence their environment, right? That, uh, is, 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 this is quite complicated.
2: Uh, So what are are the feedback processes? What does a star do to its environment? Uh,
4: Well, I'm sure people have heard of supernovas, which is when a star explodes. So obviously, if you have a model in which you create stars, in other words, stars are born, then unfortunately you have to have them die as well. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And uh, a small fraction of them, the most massive one, will die a supernova until they will explode. And of course, an explosion will disturb the environment of the star while it will... You, know, you have this explosion, so the explosion will push out the gas that happens to be near that scar, maybe evaluate a region form a bubble. I mean, we know that this happens. We've imaged this in our own milky way. And so in putting all this this physics in a sense, right, all these processes in your model is quite complicated, especially that this happens on, on a very wide range of scale, right? The star mm-hmm. is very small compared to a galaxy. So if you want to model both the galaxy and what happens at the kind of stellar level, uh, you need a, a very large range of, of distances, for example, in one model with computers have difficulty
2: handling. But the fact that the star, you still have to take into account the fact that a star, first of all, is born, shines, and also a star dies, even though that it's a very, very small thing on the scale of a galaxy, the fact that they exist and go through their own evolution affects the, the global evolution of the of the galaxy. Yeah, sort of.
4: absolutely. And this is where these recipes come about. Ah. <laughs> we can't really model them properly, so we use recipes instead and the kind of empirical determination of what the effect is. Another similar recipe is for the effect that black holes may have on the galaxy. Uh, when I said some black holes are off and some are on, the ones that are on tend to spew these great jets mm. of uh, well, material for radiation as well. Uh, essentially out along two axes, well, these jets will then again plow through the medium surrounding the black hole, will push it away, and if powerful enough may in fact blow all the gas away from the galaxy, the same might happen if you have one star, it doesn't make much damage. If you have a thousand that explode at the same time, it's going to do a lot of damage. So if a galaxy undergoes what we call a burst of star formation, if many stars are born at the same time, many stars will also die at the same time, and so uh, you'll have any explosions, and their effect, of course, is cumulative. And so, if you have, for example, a small galaxy, a dwarf galaxy, as we call them, that will experience a burst of star formation. It's quite possible that these explosions will be powerful enough or violent enough to blow all the gas out of the galaxy. Right. So, in other words, the galaxy blows away the, there's the stuff to more stuff. That's right. Could that's right. from. And then, obviously, then you cannot form new stars. So, this galaxy, mm-hmm. from that point on, you know, is is dead. Essentially, it doesn't have any more star formation.
2: And that's an example of feedback, you know, where one event causes further events, which halt or at least modify the event the in the first place the first exactly, exactly exactly
4: exactly mm. so that may happen the same similar thing might happen with a black hole if it has jets that are powerful enough they may just blow away all the gas and again this galaxy will therefore stop forming stars uh, exciting a, places galaxies aren't they there's all sorts of things going on <laughs> that's right very dynamic very complex uh but yeah it's are obviously extremely fascinating objects which is i think one of the main reason astronomers are drawn to them in the first place uh, but, you know, astronomy has also this advantage of um, encompassing a very broad range of physics. Obviously, in fact, you know, the physics of supernova depends on on the nuclear properties of material. Uh, and obviously it has effects on very, very, very large scales. So astronomy has this tendency to gather, uh, you know, on one side, Newtonian physics, nuclear physics. Uh, of course, we observe all of this to to light, which means electromagnetism is, is crucial to understanding our observations. So it has this... Uh, I wouldn't say an advantage, but certainly one of the attractive points of astronomy is that you draw together all these different uh, phenomena that often in other fields of physics might be studied only separately.
2: Mm. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us. We wish you all the best with the research. (laughs) It's fascinating stuff. Thanks very much. Thank you.
1: So there you have it. Brilliant! And actually, if you want to learn more about galactic evolution and indeed the shapes of galaxies, one thing that you can try is logging onto the Galaxy Zoo website. This is something we mentioned in the July extra edition. Stuart has talked to Dr. Chris Lintott, who is one of the main guys behind this, and this is what he had to say. OK, if you listened to the last Jodcast or have been
6: looking at the web in the past month, you may very well have heard about an exciting new project called Galaxy Zoo. Now, we're lucky to be joined on the line from the University of Oxford by one of the astronomers behind the site, that's Chris Lintott. Hi, Chris. yeah. Thanks for joining us on the Jodcast again. It's a pleasure. I think we last talked to you at the National Astronomy Meeting in April. That's right, when
5: Galaxy Zoo was a, a thought, in a, a straight beam of light in a telescope and, and nothing more.
6: So, so what is this Galaxy Zoo? Just tell us a little bit about it.
5: Well it's the solution to a very, very simple problem, which is that if you want to understand galaxy formation, the first thing you need to do is split galaxies into two major categories. Spiral galaxies like the Milky Way and basically large balls of stars, which we call elliptical galaxies. That's the easy bit, but the problem is that computers are terrible at doing this. They do all right, but we lose all the, the weird and the wonderful and therefore the interesting galaxies that fit into both both categories. So the best way to do this is to sit down, look at an image, and say, that's a spiral or that's an elliptical, because the human brain is very, very, very good at pattern recognition. So we can do this really well. So, we set, well, a PhD student here at Oxford, Kevin Savinsky, started doing this, and the one scientific result he got so far is that if you look at 50,000 galaxies, you never want to see another galaxy again in your life. <laughs> we know that for sure. Um, But we have a million galaxies. Images of a million galaxies taken by a robotic telescope, which is producing what's called the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. And we wanted to investigate all of these. So we put all the million images on the web, and we're inviting members of the public to visit our website and help us classify them.
6: It sounds like a great idea. How long did it take, um, your PhD student, to sort out 50,000?
5: That was, um, well, it depends how many beers he has when he talks about <laughs> this. It's not my PhD student. He's, uh, he works for a couple of other people. But um, between a week and a month of constantly doing nothing else but classifying galaxies. All day long. Yeah, right. it's not good for the health. So we were talking, because I've been helping follow up some of his original selections. Um, and we were talking, we said, well, wouldn't it be nice to do the rest? And suddenly it hit us that we could do that, but by recruiting essentially... Tens of thousands of research assistants via the web, and we launched a couple of weeks ago now, and people have been visiting the site by their tens of thousands, uh, and helping us classify these galaxies. It's been fantastic.
6: And this this follows on from things like Stardust at Home and SETI at Home.
5: That's right. I mean, I remember doing SETI at home when I had a very, very slow laptop way back when. When did SETI at home start? It must have been late so 90s. years ago. ago. Yeah, I remember chugging through one unit every couple of weeks or something, uh, looking for aliens. Never found any, or if I did, they never told me. But the real inspiration, as you say, was Stardust at home. This is NASA's Stardust probe. Flew through the tail of Comet Vilt 2. Uh, bought dust grains back here, and a tiny proportion of those are interstellar dust grains so they told people what to look for and then let them loose on the data and it was hugely successful i think they had twenty thousand people look at 40 million images of dust grains to look for that needle in a haystack and it was that that made us think well hang on galaxies are more interesting than dust grains (laughs) so if people will sit in front of a computer and look at a dust grain, surely they'll want to look at our beautiful pictures of galaxies
6: and you do have some nice pictures of galaxies i've been trying out galaxy zoo for myself we do
5: i think um we asked people if they see anything particularly nice to email us and we, we kind of underestimated the number of galaxies which are pretty because I've got 14,000 emails that need sorting through we're thinking <laughs> of setting up email zoo in which we invite members of the public to answer our emails <laughs> for us. but actually that's an important point because some of the we haven't been through all of them yet but we have been through a large portion of the things people have pointed out and we're actually beginning to write proposals to follow up on things people have discovered wow. nothing to do with the original science case but we've got such a wealth of information that leaps out at you when you look at a galaxy and you say, hang on, that doesn't make sense. You need to look at it to do that. And most of these images have never been viewed before by the human eye. All the analysis, despite the huge amount of work that's been done on the Sloan data sets, most of these images have never been looked at. So you don't notice that that galaxy's particularly odd until you just have the image in front of you so
6: if people haven't already signed up to to help with this huge project how do they go about doing that
5: it's quite simple you go to the website which is uh, www.galaxyzoo.org there's a tutorial that will take you a couple of minutes to read that will show you the kind of things we're looking for how to divide a galaxy from one to the other then there's a short trial that we know six and seven year olds can pass, so it's nothing scary. If you do, if you don't want to do an exam,
6: I managed to get do it, and it seemed to work. So,
5: exactly. If, if even you can pass, <laughs> then you're a radio astronomer, right? Yep. <laughs> Exactly. We've had you pass. Theoretical cosmologists have passed Even test. theoretical
6: cosmologists? Even
5: theoretical. We've got some on the team, and they've learned a lot about galaxies. <laughs> <laughs> they, even their colleagues can pass this test. Uh, and then you're there, and you're seeing an image of a galaxy that probably very few people have ever seen before, and we just ask you to click. Is it a spiral or is it an elliptical? And there's one tiny wrinkle on this, which is that if it's a spiral, we'd like to know which way the arms are pointing because that tells you which way the galaxy is rotating. So that's
6: clockwise or or anticlockwise?
5: That's right, yeah. For the ones that you can see that, obviously, we ask you to record that as well. And the reason for doing that is a hint that something very, very strange is going on in the universe. There's a claim in the literature that came out a couple of months ago that if you look at one patch of sky, the odds of a galaxy going clockwise are different than if you look on another patch of sky. Now, it should be completely random, because this is just an effect of us looking up, and depends on the angle we see the galaxies. Yeah. So it should be random, but the suggestion based on a 1,000 galaxies is that it isn't. And if that's true, then we're missing something about the large-scale structure of the universe. Mm. And There might be a magnetic field that threads the entire universe. Something very odd is going on, so we can test that. And so we're asking you to do that as well. Because with the number of galaxies in our sample, we should be able, hopefully, to provide the definitive test of that.
6: Yeah, sounds like a a good idea. How how much time do people need to put into this? Can they just sort a few galaxies, or do they have to put in hours and hours and hours of time?
5: The more the better, obviously, but a few galaxies are useful. I reckon it takes, the first time you come to the site, it takes five minutes to get to the point where you're classifying galaxies. Mm. And once you've done that, five minutes is useful, or, you know, whatever time you, you can give us. I, war- I will warn you, though, as you know if you've tried it, it's, it's disturbingly addictive. <laughs> yes.
6: <laughs> I used it most of a lunch hour. <laughs> yeah,
5: exactly. It's like sitting eating crisps. You, you think you'll just have one more and then you'll leave it, but there's always the next galaxy. And whoever the people who designed our site did a fantastic job because when you classify the galaxy, it automatically loads the next one. So it's always tempting just to hang on and see what the next galaxy is going to be like.
6: Apart from helping with the science, what incentive is there for people to actually participate?
5: You get to see some really, really beautiful things that very few people have seen before, and people are having a great time. I mean, there's been a blog in- there's a blog that's run independently of us that's sprung up in which people are sharing with each other images they've discovered. Really? Yeah, absolutely. It's galaxyzoo.wordpress.com if you want to go and have a look. It's linked from our site. And it's fantastic. People are saying, "This is look at this," you know, and trying to puzzle out what's going on here. I've heard from other astrophysicists who've had friends who haven't ever talked to them about the work, Ring them up and send them an email, and say, "What's this?" Because <laughs> I might have discovered something. <laughs> it's just an amazing way to get to know the universe around us. And because you're dealing with real data, I mean, you get to help us as well. Yeah. But you get to really explore the universe. And for those of us who live in a city, you can sail the night sky this way. It's almost as good as being under dark skies.
6: You've somehow managed to, to get those images as thumbnails for us to look at. Presumably that was done by a computer.
5: Yeah, Everything. everything from the telescope selecting its targets, to taking the images, to processing them, even to classifying them as a galaxy... And in some cases, you know, most of these galaxies in the catalogue have redshifts and sizes recorded, distances and sizes recorded. All of that's completely automatic. So it's not until somebody comes along to GalaxyZoo.org, has a look, that you, you get to see what's there. And, you know, it's a million galaxies. There are still some surprises out there that people haven't, haven't spotted yet.
6: Now, one of the things I noticed while, while trying to sort things, or one of the things I worried at the back of my mind, was what if I'd classified something wrongly? What if I'd say classified a, a spiral galaxy as an elliptical galaxy?
5: Well, Stuart, we'd, we'd, we'd expose you to the rest of the astronomical <laughs> world and your, your degrees would be taken away from you. Um, right. No, well, what but what about if
6: a member of the public did that? Uh,
5: no, that's, that that's, <laughs> actually, I should mention, astronomers are terrible at doing this. Um, I, we, we've done some experiments, and astronomers are the last people in the world we want to come and sign up. Amateur astronomers are great, people who look at things. Members of the public are great. Astronomers get too worried about it and then give up in a half. Um, <laughs> But (laughs) leaving that aside, because the project has already been a great success, we're going to be able to show the same galaxy to lots of people. Right. Now that's important because it allows us if you hit the wrong button it doesn't matter because that'll get corrected. But it also means we can do something that's never been done before, which is we'll know how good these classifications are. Because Kevin may have sat and looked at his 50,000, which is an amazing effort. I don't want to take anything away from him. I think he wished we took it away from him earlier, (laughs) but nevertheless, uh, you know, it's amazing what he did. But if you read the papers based on that, you have to believe that Kevin was good at classifying galaxies. Mm. Whereas if we're dreaming of getting to a point where 10 people have looked at every galaxy, then we'll be able to say, okay, well, this is the results we get from our study. Now, we, this is a, if, if we get something controversial, we can double-check. We can say, okay, we'll only take those where nine out of ten people have have agreed. Mm. And that's really quite a strong criteria. So we can choose how much faith to put in our selections. And being able to do that is something no one's been able to do before. And it's going to be very, very interesting to explore exactly how much confidence you can have in in some of these marginal classifications
6: well it's a great project i hope i don't waste too much of my lunch times and day doing it
5: well don't worry we've got plenty of other ideas for what happens next so we'll, we'll be trying to steal as much of your time as possible
6: right and we'll advise all our, the jodcast listeners to go to galaxyzoo.org and check it out
5: yes please that would be great
6: chris while you're here you also have started a uh, well, it's not new now, but you started a, an astronomy podcast called livingspaceonline.com. Just tell us about that.
5: It's The Sky at Night, assuming we had the budget to fly everyone into the same studio. So the idea is it's a bit, it, we, we're covering all the news and trying to talk to as wide a variety of people as possible. Right. So for people who, who like watching The Sky at Night but don't want to stay up late, it's not Patrick, I should say, it's me and my fantastic co presenter from Heart FM, Harriet Scott. If you want to to find out all the latest news for from the universe uh in between Jodcasts, then you can come to LivingSpaceOnline.com.
6: I noticed you're every week. We can't possibly compete with that. That's... Well,
5: it's every every week while our sanity holds. We'll see how long that lasts.
6: <laughs> right. Well, we'll put links to that podcast on our show notes as well. And thanks very much for joining us. Thank you.
1: Right, so there you go. That's something that everyone can get involved with and the website. And all of the links that you need will be up on the JODCAST website under the show notes for August. Fantastic. But now for other things that you can see in the night sky. Here's Ian Morrison.
7: Well, let's just hope we have some clear skies during August. From my home in Macclesfield, Cheshire, I think I've only seen the clear sky in the evening about two or three times. We have quite a nice late summer or summer skyscape. In the south, as the sun is setting we see the constellations of Scorpius and Sagittarius. And in fact, even last night, even before it was really dark, it was obvious that Jupiter is lying between the two. In fact, it's in the constellation Ophiuchus, which is a large, not very prominent constellation that lies above Scorpius. But if you actually move upwards, you come to a constellation called Hercules. The four brightest stars make up what is called the keystone, because it looks a little bit like the keystone of a bridge. With binoculars, if you start at the lower right of those four stars and work upwards two-thirds of the way towards the upper right, hopefully you'll see a little fuzzy object. And with a telescope, it's even better. You're actually observing the globular cluster M13. That's the 13th object in the Messier catalogue. And a globular cluster is a tightly bound spherical concentration of stars, perhaps 500,000 to a million in a particular globular cluster, and they date back from the origin of our galaxy. They were some of the earliest objects to be born within the galaxy, and we don't quite know how, but it's well worth picking up with binoculars, and even better, in fact, with a telescope. To the right of Hercules is a rather faint little arc of stars called Corona Borealis. It does look very sweet with a dark sky. And to the right of that is the bright star Arcturus, the lower right of the constellation of Bootes. If you then go to the left of Hercules, we come to the bright star Vega. Up to the left of that is the bright star Deneb, and below the two of them, a little bit to the left, is Altair in Aquila. And these three bright stars, Vega in Lyra, Deneb in Cygnus, and Altair in Aquila, make up what is called the Summer Triangle. And there are lots of nice objects to observe in those constellations. If you care to look at the night sky page on the Jodrell Bank website, it talks about them and shows you where to find many of the interesting objects in that rather nice part of the sky. If it's a really dark night, you'll actually see the Milky Way, running down through Cygnus towards Sagittarius, close to the horizon. So not a bad time to observe the sky if the heavens are clear. Now we've had a few good months for observing the planets, but uh, not perhaps quite so good in August. Many of them are either in front of or behind the sun, so they're not visible this particular month. As I've mentioned, Jupiter is in fact lying in off Ophiuchus, a little southerly bit of that constellation that lies between Scorpius and Sagittarius, and that is really very obvious, low in the sky after sunset. The problem is that that part of the ecliptic, that's the path of the sun, but also where we tend to see the, the planets, because they all lie in the same plane, is the lowest part of the ecliptic, so it's probably only about 16 degrees elevation for much of the United Kingdom. And if you go to the north of Scotland, it's only 11 degrees elevation. That's a very good reason for having a nice trip uh, to perhaps the Mediterranean, where, of course, it's going to be significantly higher. And all the atmosphere that's in the way will unfortunately degrade the image if you observe with a, with a telescope. So we're going to have to wait quite a few years for that to get significantly better as it takes Jupiter a while to go around the Sun. The other planet we can see is gradually getting better. That, of course, is the planet Mars. It's still only rising at around midnight or somewhat before. Uh, Its disk is only about seven arc seconds across, but that's actually big enough to at least see perhaps the polar caps and the dark region called Certis Major, that is perhaps the most prominent region on the surface. Magnitude about plus 0.5, so it's reasonably bright, or nothing like as bright, of course, as Jupiter. Now, it's getting closer to us, but in particular, it's actually closest to the sun on August the 19th. Now, that's when it's actually warmest, and it can actually get about 20% hotter when it's nearest the sun than when it's further away in its rather elliptical orbit. And that explains why, as you may have read, that there have been dust storms on Mars recently, and they were worried for a short while that these might actually harm the two little rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, because the amount of light that their solar cells were reaching from the sun had actually dropped to the level for a couple of days, where in fact they weren't able to recharge the batteries. They put the two landers into sort of hibernation just letting us know they were alive every few days, but not really doing anything to conserve power. But it looks as though, just in the last few days, things have got a bit better. So really, we've just got Jupiter and Mars to look at. But we do have a couple of highlights this month, and of course, every August, one of the main highlights are the Perseid meteor shower. It's probably the most consistent of all the meteor showers that we can observe. How well we see it a particular year depends quite a bit on the state of the moon. And this year we're very lucky because virtually at the same time as the peak of the Perseids, which is from 11th to the 13th of August, we have a new moon on August the 12th. It couldn't be better. So there'll be no moonlight at all in the sky. So it gives us a real chance. The best probably the morning of the the 14th or the 15th. Stay up. If you can, till after midnight, have a look on our website and you'll actually have a nice little chart to tell you where to look. But any time from the 11th, 12th, 13th in the early morning hours, you should see some of the Perseid meteors. And there's one other thing that with a pair of binoculars you should be able to pick up because it's very close to Jupiter. And that is the brightest of what used to be called the minor planets or asteroids, I have a nasty feeling they're now called small solar system bodies, which isn't really quite so, so a nice name in my view, but that's called Vesta. Now, Vesta, it's not the biggest, Ceres is the largest, and last month I may have mentioned that, but Vesta is the brightest, and over the latter part of August, it is actually very close indeed to Jupiter. Above it, and initially a little bit to the right, and then it moves across above and to the left. And again, on the night sky page, I've given a star chart to let you see where it is and instructions uh, of where to look. Um, There's a little fourth magnitude star called Omega Ophiuchus, which is just to the lower right of Jupiter. And on the 24th of the month, Vesta's up and to the right of that little star. Uh, It gets gradually closer to Jupiter, And on the 27th, it's just a half a degree away. On the 28th and 29th, it's just 25 arc minutes. So if you can find Jupiter, center that in the field of your binoculars, you will definitely see, perhaps for the first time, a minor planet called Vesta. Good hunting.
1: Thanks, Ian. And unfortunately, that brings this issue of the Jodcast to an end. So thank you for listening, everybody. We'll be back in September with the Night Sky and Ask an Astronomer and more of the news and interviews that you've come to know and love on the Jodcast. Thanks to Nick for joining us today. Yep, no problem. Thanks to Stuart and to Ian. And also thanks to David Alexander MacDonald, who was the voice of the intro and outro. Of course, no attempt has been made to supersede or infringe any existing copyright relating to Jurassic Park. And finally, one more note of thanks to Zoe Blade for composing and performing Sea of Calm, which went behind the news. That's it from us. I hope you have a wonderful holiday, and we'll see you back again in September. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, Jodcast Park. Not a resort, not a scientific conservatory, Just a little piece of astronomy that every child in the whole wide world will insist on listening to. Stewarts are in the meadows. Nicks and Megans are roaming the grounds and you may even see one of our Ian Morrisons perched in the telescope dish. We continue to clone the Davids for our endless amusement, And over there you can see our ultimate prize, a family of Tims. We searched long and hard to find the genetic material for that one. Who wants to see it? I see all of you are interested. Do come this way.